Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G. We did it. We made it to 2021. This is our first episode of the new year. Some of us thought we'd never make it through 2020. It just seemed like it was never going to end, but it did. It did. And we are living proof of that. And we're here and we're so excited that this is the episode that's going to kick off 2021. Our guest, Michaela Elias out of Nashville. Amazing to talk to. Really great. Before we bring the episode, you know, we always have a few announcements, a few things to share. Of course, we have to let you know about our merch page uh, starting Wednesday. Uh, there's going to be a huge sale at tpublic.com where you can just search near and queer to my heart at tpublic, tee.public.com. We have the links on our social media, on the liner notes. So check that out. We've got some really cool, we got mugs and masks and t shirts and magnets and phone cases and pillows and all kinds of anything you need for the house. We have our queer heart unicorn icon. We have our logo. We have other related designs. We have an older, wiser lesbian owl design. We just had some fun with it. We've had a lot of people send us pictures of the merch they bought and it's all come out so beautifully. I have a near and queer to my heart mask that I love to wear out. It gets a lot of compliments and Let's people know I'm wearing a mask, and they should too. We have that for you. We've got a lot of really cool things coming up, so check out our social media and Near and Queer to My Heart on Instagram and Facebook, on Twitter, Queer to My Heart. We do fun stuff on Twitter. We post jokes. We do polls, surveys. We retweet funny things from funny people, from past guests. So definitely be a part of that community. We'd love to have it. But right now... We'd like to welcome Michaela Elias to the Near and Queer to My Heart community. We're so excited to have her. So let's get to it. Let's get to Michaela. I'm so happy to have you on this podcast. I'm going to pick your brain about a lot of wonderful things that you do. But first, I know you're coming to us from Nashville, right? Yes. Yes, I am. I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, though. There's like three people in Nashville who are actual Nashville natives who were born and raised here. So I'm one of the fun Nashville transplants that there's like a 100 new people who move here every day, I think. So I'm one of those. (laughs) Well, I I get it. I was gonna say I freaking love Nashville. I've always had such a good time there. 
Oh, it's awesome. It's weird right now because, I mean, there's so many fun things to do. You can be out literally 24-7, but now without quarantine, I'm like, where are the bars? Where where are my friends? (laughs) So I'm in Louisiana. We're in what we're calling phase three. Mm -hmm. So things are open but limited and there's a lot of outdoor seating. Are things open there? Are bars open, restaurants? Yeah, so Nashville and Tennessee itself are having different I guess like quarantine procedures because Nashville is this delightful little liberal bubble is like actually going through and doing different phase stages and stuff. I think we're in stage two, but I think the rest of Tennessee is quite literally open for business. The mayor of New Orleans has really been fighting the state of Louisiana about reopening things. Mm -hmm. And we have the only football team that we have in Louisiana is the New Orleans Saints. Right. And the mayor was like, no way, we're not having anybody at games. They did a couple games ago, they had uh, 750 people that were all family members of the Saints and and just to see how it was. And then she's like, we're not going to do it. So what the Saints did was they said, okay, well, we're going to go play at LSU then in Baton Rouge, where they'll totally have us like no rules, like we can have as many people as we want. And then they finally put the pressure on the mayor that the city was going to lose all this money. So now they're slowly phasing in football. They had 3000 people at the last game. Um, and they're going to keep upping that. So it's just, it's incredible when you're even trying to be like, hey, let's keep people alive. And they're like, uh, well, no. Let's watch football instead. <laughs> yes, it is very important that we have our live football in a dome. Right. <laughs> uh, it's such a mess. That's why I was like, I don't know if, if that's kind of how, how it is anywhere else. Because, you know, every time I talk to other people there it's such it's so different state to state oh it's totally different I went and visited family in September back in Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania is taking it generally pretty seriously I think because we have a democratic governor So everything is like scaled back and like there's restaurants and stuff that are open, but they're all taking it incredibly seriously. So my friends and I went to this little rooftop bar for dinner and I was like, hey guys, I don't know that I'm really comfortable with that because I don't know what the protocol looks like here. And my friends were like, oh no, we have an hour and a half long reservation and we have to be out at that hour and a half mark. And I was like, really? And they were like, yeah, they take time to wipe down the tables really well, sanitize everything that you use. And I was like, wow, that's uh, that's quite a 180 from what it's like <laughs> down here in Nashville. <laughs> yeah, you're like, they're actually concerned. <laughs> yeah, it was so weird to be in a place that had empathy <laughs> for others. Yeah, I, I, I hope one day that the whole world gets to experience that. Right. You're from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania originally? Yes. Yeah. I Born and raised? Born and raised. I was born like an hour north and an hour north of Pittsburgh is just like cow farms. So yeah, born and raised there. I moved to Nashville for school in 2016. So I've been here a few years. It's a really wonderful place. I love Pittsburgh so much. I have a tattoo, but I don't think I would go back to Pittsburgh anytime in the near future. I love Nashville. Is it the love of Nashville that makes you not want to go back? Or is there are there certain things about Pittsburgh where you're like, no thanks? It's the love of Nashville, but it's also not having to deal with my family. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get to them. <laughs> oh, absolutely, we will. <laughs> 
were you raised in like a farmland area or were were you raised more in a more in the city? So I was raised, I spent up until my teenage years about a half hour north of Pittsburgh in a very suburby area. Old steel town kind of poor, you know, the infrastructure is not there because there's nobody trying to pour money into the city. And then I moved to a place very similar, but in farmland. So I basically moved from the suburbs to a very identical situation plus cows. <laughs> <laughs> and when, when, how old were you at that point? I moved when I was 14. That's a... I don't want to say a bad time to move, but that's a awkward. I don't know. Yeah, how, how it was. was oh my gosh, it was it was a really weird time, and it like ties into my coming out story too. I was really, really unhappy because I mean, I was going into my freshman year of high school, and I was angry all the time because you know I'm a teenager, and I figured I would have a really hard time adjusting. And I totally did. I went from a school with a my graduating class was 150 people to this gigantic school that served all of the rural area that had, I think, 700 ish people in my graduating class. That in itself was an adjustment. And then I also was becoming like cognizant of the fact that I liked girls and was like, Oh, God, everything is happening all at once. I'm so stressed and exhausted from this move. We moved because my mom got remarried. So I was upset that, you know, they were uprooting my life, because it was convenient for them. And now I'm have ambivalent feelings about that but it was hard being 14 and losing all of my friends and having to start over in this gigantic place so it was it was a hot mess <laughs> yeah I was like that's not that's the hardest time I, I mm-hmm. went all the way I, you know I lived in the same place and it was still hard because we still when I went to high school it was like different junior highs filtered in together and you're already a freshman and you're already having all of the hormones and all the other things that are going on. So, Oh yeah. <laughs> it always, yeah, I feel like it always feels like everyone knows each other. Like that's yes. how I feel in most situations still. They all know each other except for me. Yeah. Even though it was a big area, people don't leave where I graduated high school from. So there were kids who would find out that they had a second cousin who was sitting next to them in class. Everybody stays there. Everybody knows everybody because they're somehow connected to each other. And people don't leave ever. They go on vacations and are like, ah, cool, that was neat. I want to continue to stay in my little bubble here now. So I know only a handful of people who graduated with me left to go to school out of state and stayed out of state. Everyone else has, even if they went to school out of state, has gone back there. So it's very insular. What do they got to do ancestry DNA before they can go out on dates? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> there were a couple times that people would be like, yeah, I was really um excited to go on this date with Jimmy until I found out he's my third cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I was like, that's just a sitcom episode just waiting to be written. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So I know you mentioned that it all ties kind of into the coming out story. Yeah. We usually ask this on this podcast um, as kind of 
I, I kind of ask it as like a coming out experience because I feel like coming out mm-hmm. is still probably something you have to choose to do on a fairly daily, maybe post-COVID, not as daily as before, but coming out isn't just like a wham, bam, and we're done. It's kind of this thing that always happens. So I like to ask the question as, when did you first come out to yourself? Uh, When did you start coming out to other people, uh, friends and family? And then when did you come out professionally or if that's something that you choose to do or not? Yeah, those are really good questions. I like the way that you phrased that. I started coming out to myself when I was in ninth grade, my freshman year of high school, while I was having all of the like moving turmoil and was basically like alone with my thoughts, you know, trying to sift through your feelings as a teenager, but then also like your feelings related to the outside world and how you interact with people. And so since I kind of was a hermit for that year, while I was trying to get to know people, I did a lot of self-reflection and the coming out process to myself was part of that. I was raised in a very Republican, conservative house, which is funny because my dad didn't necessarily care about religion, but my mom did. So whenever I started coming out to myself, I did the thing that I know a lot of other people have experienced where I pushed back completely and was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not something I can do. I just think girls are cool. I don't want to date them. I just want to be around them all the time. (laughs) And it's easy because you're like, boys are trash at 14. Like, this is a very easy thing. And you tell all your friends, like, girls rule. And and they're like, yeah. (laughs) And you're like, okay. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, no, but but girls do roll. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I I did like a 180 internally and was like, "Oh no, I'm going to repress that." And with my upbringing in the church, I internalized the homophobia and was like, "You can't be gay, you can't be out, you can't go and have a normal life. And it was particularly confusing to me because I'm pan. So I had the added confusion of being like, well, girls are really cool and I like them, but also I like boys, so I have to be straight. So I was praying the gay away, trying to, you know, make these feelings that I had for women go away because it was confusing to also then have these feelings for men. So it was a really messy coming out experience for myself. Oh, my like moment of when I really started to realize that I do like girls (laughs) and wasn't just thinking they were neat was after a party that my friend had had and another one of my friends slept over with me And she's the heaviest sleeper that I've ever met in my whole life. So she crashed with me in my bed and I woke up the next morning with her laying on top of me, like cuddling me. And I was like, oh God, oh God, Willow, you have to wake up. This is, I can't, (laughs) I can't do this. And she just zonked out. She was so exhausted. And I like rolled out of my bed and laid on the floor to go back to sleep so I wouldn't have to be in the same bed with her because I was so, so flustered. I love I love that her name was Willow. Oh my gosh, yeah. It feels right that my first yeah. like real crush was my friend named Willow. That seems so right. 
Buffy would be quite proud. Exactly. (laughs) But it's interesting how, you know, that happens. And then you're like, okay, now in this moment, luckily she's a heavy sleeper because I don't know how I would handle right right oh my gosh yeah and I told her about that shortly after I came out and she was like wow that would have been really uncomfortable for you and I was like yeah it would have been she was like I didn't know any of that happened (laughs) I'm a heavy sleeper too and I I've been watching this prison show called Wentworth Mm -hmm. and I was like I would just die in prison (laughs) I can sleep 14 hours without anything and, and mm-hmm. my girlfriend sometimes is like the lawn the guy came and mowed the lawn and three people rang the doorbell and your phone wouldn't <laughs> stop going off and I'm like oh really I feel that oh my gosh I have to set a series of alarms before I can be like functioning in the morning wake up to them going off and I'm like how long oh 30 minutes okay yeah I have to set my alarms at least an hour before I need to start actually being awake i think what i need is an old school alarm clock that number one beeps super loud and number two that i can position far away from my bed so i have to get up yeah yeah with my phone what i end up doing and i don't even realize it is i'll hit the button and just it turns off and i don't even know i did it yeah i've missed a couple of my shifts because of that recently and i'm like oh god oh no (laughs) i kind of wish it was different but i oftentimes wake up really refreshed but you know, if I ever do go to jail, I've just now let everyone know, just wait till midnight. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of by 10th, 11th grade had gotten to a point where I was like, well, I'm still gay. So this whole God thing isn't working out. And I started to like unpack my feelings about religion and come to a place of I don't personally believe in this. So if that's something that my family believes in, I respect that I understand but it's not something that's of interest to me, you know? So when I started to unpack that, all of my feelings about being queer started to come back. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to have to deal with this. And I spent a couple years trying to figure out what label felt right, because I like labels and I like having things in their little boxes. And I had a really hard time because I didn't really feel like the label of bisexual worked for me, even though by textbook, I could be considered bi, you know, I'm attracted to my gender and other genders. So I was like, okay, I must be bi, but that doesn't feel right. So one of my friends started this sweet little feminist organization at our high school, which didn't go over super well with all the uh, conservative country folk. But (laughs) I um, can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) They would vandalize the signs and stuff and very tame acts of aggression, like nothing that made us feel actually unsafe, but things that were very clearly hostile towards us but anyhow my friend who founded that club I started hanging out with her more with the organization and she started to come out and she came out as pan also and I was like oh pansexual you say (laughs) so I I found that term and was like oh I really like this I like the idea of being attracted to potentially anybody and it just felt it felt like the right label it felt like that was where my community was and where 
I could find people who were like me. So my senior year of high school, I was dating this guy while I was going through all of these thoughts and processing all of this. So bless him. (laughs) He really, he really bared with me for a while while I was just confused and trying to figure out where my place was in the world. So he was super sweet. And I, when we broke up, I was like, it's truly nothing personal. And then a month later, I came out publicly to my friends. So I sent a bunch of them text messages and was like, hey, I figured this out. I'm Pan and I'm out here having a great time. And I'm very excited about this new installment in my life. And all of my friends were super supportive. It kind of gave me a rose-colored glasses look to coming out that I didn't really understand the privilege that I had in that. So I started to come out to people who were new to me, people who I hadn't ever met before, and people who would then know me as, oh, okay, this girl is queer, and this is part of her narrative. So yeah, I came out to all of my friends, everyone was very supportive, started coming out publicly, but my immediate family didn't know because I was worried that they wouldn't be supportive. So my first year of college, I started a queer organization, which was also very fun and not super well received in my hometown. I was going to community college at this point in time, so right before I transferred down to the school I went to in Nashville, I was working on this student organization, getting it off the ground, and this was back in my conservative cow farm town. So we didn't get a ton of traction until like people started kind of discreetly coming to us and being like, is this confidential? Can I find a community? And that kind of started to put my place into perspective that I was like, oh, I really do have a lot of privilege here. I don't think that my family would do anything aggressive or abrasive. So I decided to come out to my mom and I explained to her pansexuality is an attraction to all genders. As I'm weeping, telling her this story, I had to explain to her what all genders meant and break down the gender binary and so I'm like sobbing and I'm like oh, there's there's a binary and I, I'll, I'll help you like learn and she was like I just don't understand so it was a lot of tears and in the end she was like hey since you're still attracted to men can you just pretend to be straight and I was like no It's taken me five years to get to this point, and I feel like I've had the ability to find this community and to find people who I care about and who care about me that I'm not not going back into the closet. So on my anniversary of the day that I came out to my friends, I posted this big, long Facebook post and was like, hey extended family, friends who I don't see. This is what's been going on. This is my life. Here you go. And it kind of blew up my family for a hot second. My stepdad was mad that I didn't tell him, which I'm not going to have a conversation about my <laughs> sexuality with my stepdad. <laughs> like That's the thing. You're like, how, are we really going to talk about my sex? Like, 
this is not a conversation we would have in in any other terms. Exactly. So your mom knew, but she did. She didn't tell him. She. I asked her to be discreet. Okay. Because I was like, I don't know how he's going to react, and I don't want it to be this one sided argument of me against them trying to continue to stay safe yeah well that's good she respected you mm-hmm. know that you were gonna do this on on your own terms and in your own time and she did yeah. respect that so that's oh yeah yeah that's I'm, a I'm very glad that she was discreet about that because she was I told her sometime like six months before I came out publicly with my big old Facebook post so she Really kept that under wraps for a while, which was really nice and gave me the time and the opportunity to think about how I wanted to come out. So I came out and it the Facebook post that I made definitely uh, ruffled my family's feathers and they, I, some of them have become really, really awesome allies. And then some of them just kind of don't associate with me anymore, which I'm like, okay, <laughs> Have fun. Have a good life. <laughs> I'm not missing out anything if uh, if we're not tight, you know. So I'm glad that I do have people who are in my corner as part of my family because I don't necessarily have that support system with my parents. But I know if I'm going back home that there are people who I can turn to if things get unsafe, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing I really like about what you've said is um, because I think the importance of, of language and of, of having information, like a lot of folks just didn't have the, the context or the information about gender identity, about sexuality, about what this means, what that means to kind of, you know, figure out what's right for them. So mm-hmm. I think that piece is so important. And, and I like how thoughtful your journey with that. Yeah, I feel very lucky to have been able to really learn about language and terminology and find my piece of the puzzle with the help of the people that I had, like my friend who started the feminist organization and my friends who helped me make the queer org at my first school. I really got surrounded with a lot of good people who are still part of my found family and they are such wonderful allies and they're such wonderful people who are part of the community that really make an effort to help educate other people. Yeah. And then it sounded like, you know, when you started your organization, that you were doing that for other people. Right. Yeah. Some people (laughs) do the coming out, the public coming out and they're like, yeah, I'm going to change my whole wardrobe. It's going to be awesome. And instead of doing things for myself, I was like, I'm going to start this queer org for everybody else who was very confused through high school. (laughs) Yeah, and it's great. And then they know, like, you know, when people even say, is this confidential, like that gives them a space to go where Mm -hmm. they've obviously had thoughts and feelings that they haven't been able to either contextualize or process or share. Yeah, we had a, a lot of people come in for a couple of meetings And then like kind of float in, float out. We had a core group of 10-ish people who were there all the time. And then every once in a while, people would pop in. A lot of the times, this was very encouraging. A lot of the times it was people who just kind of wanted to ask questions. And our questions were, they came to us in really respectful ways of people just not knowing or understanding and they just had questions and wanted a place to go for answers so I was glad to have been able to 
do that for people in my hometown. I just, I think sometimes someone's environment and the inability to access uh, other like-minded folks or information mm-hmm. or just someone that will answer the freaking question and not give them a lecture or tell them they're going to Yeah. Help. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Any of that. So yeah, I think that's, that's wonderful. I do. Uh, what religion were you raised in? I was raised in the Lutheran church. So kind of Protestant, but less intense. So the Lutheran church as a whole is pretty pretty lax I think for any of like the Protestant offshoots or the um, Catholic faith as it it is I think that it's a little bit more accepting but if you combine combine that with the area that I was raised in you know it basically became like Catholicism light (laughs) you know yeah was there talk about homosexuality queerness in religion, was that preached about? Was that part of it, or was it not talked about at all? I was thinking about this in therapy the other day, <laughs> actually. <laughs> I don't think that I really internalized messages from my church. I feel like I internalized these messages from other people who were, you know, trying to discriminate on the basis of being part of the Christian faith. So I think that's where I internalized it from because I don't remember having any conversations about any queer topics at all ever in my church growing up. And it was a pretty diverse, for that area, pretty diverse group of people. And I think it was just one of those things that we didn't talk about. Like there were definitely a couple of people who were out, who were you know, 20s-ish, who would come back with their family, they weren't excluded, but it was definitely the whisper network of all the gossipy church folks who would be like, oh, you have to stay away from that person. So there was no mention of, oh, stay away from this guy because he's gay, but it was the implied message of stay away from him because he's gay, you know? Yeah, I feel I was raised Jewish. So I just hear about church from other people. So I'm always so fascinated because church is so it's so important, you know, in a lot of folks upbringing. Um, But I feel like the churches range from like the brimstone and fire, you are going to hell and you are just going to be dragging a rock up a hill and then falling back down. And that's your, you know, and that's your eternity forever to the like, we don't talk about it, but we all know why we don't talk about it. Right. Yeah. That's definitely the, the latter one that you were talking about is definitely how my upbringing was. So I think that caused its own challenge because it was, you know, me dealing with the isolation of being separated from people who were like me. And I felt like I was the only person to have ever felt that way. And I didn't really know that that was what was making me feel so lonely until I started going to therapy. And I was like, wow, that's, that's why I felt so alone as a kid, because I felt like I was the only person who was going through what I was going through. Yeah, absolutely. I also, uh, and it's like this way with the Jewish religion. Like I remember, I didn't end up going, but they have the birthright trip, which I don't know if you've heard of if basically if you're Jewish before you're 
26, they'll give you a free trip to Israel. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's a really awesome program and a great way to travel. I ended up not going because the time I wanted to go, there was a lot of safety issues that were happening. Yeah. But I went to the, you had to get, you had an interview before, you know, you could get accepted to the program. And I remember the lady was just basically more or less saying that she met her husband on this trip and that you should go on this trip because you're going to meet a husband. Like that was the underlying, like, yeah, you get this great trip to Israel, but hopefully you come back with a ring on your finger. Right. A lot of religions more subtle than that have that, like, you will get married and have kids. You will be a wife. Mm -hmm. You will do all these things. And I think subconsciously that had gotten in my head that like, because I never wanted that and I didn't know why. And I thought I was somehow broken because that's what I thought every, every woman or every person, even I'll say every person, like Mm -hmm. you would want to get married and have kids and, and be part of this community. And that was the norm. And that was what was accepted. And that's what you should want. Like you should want it. Right, right. I totally resonate with that. I mean, even from being a kid, the idea of being married in the church is so ingrained and baptism is always such a big deal. And, you know, you see the parents and the godparents who are just so flushed with joy and are so excited to bring this child into the world. And I didn't resonate with that in an abstract way I could, but I also was just like, well, I guess that's what I do. Yeah, I totally understand that. Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about that where it's like these messages that you didn't even know you were, you know, the way that like advertisements have yes. these like subliminal messages. It's like I was getting those from all over the place and I had no fucking idea. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's what I was thinking about in therapy, talking about it with my therapist. And she's like, where did you get these messages? And I'm like, that's a great question. <laughs> You're like literally everywhere. <laughs> I did want to go back. Um, so you were raised with uh, Republican parents? Uh. Yes. I I wrote them a very long-winded, heartfelt letter about why they shouldn't vote for Donald Trump this year. <laughs> uh. That was a lot. <laughs> are they So they're Republican no matter what. Like Because I know this election in particular, there are a lot of, at least what I'm reading, maybe I'm reading the liberal stuff, but that, there's a lot of people that have always voted Republican and are rethinking it because of the shit that we're in right now. I feel like my stepdad is in that camp where my mom just votes red ticket if she votes at all. She doesn't look into any of the issues. She has really no interest in it at all. And is just like, well, I guess I agree with these people, so I'll vote for them. So she's kind of has these like unintended repercussions for just kind of voting the same way that she always has. But my stepdad, since I've come out, we've had some really great conversations. He's in the military, so he usually votes Republican because of the military, which is understandable. I feel like there are some things that you can have a single issue vote on that are like, I can kind of reason with you about that. And then there's the single issue voters like my mom who is just like, well, I guess I'll do this. And I'm like, okay, but maybe be an educated, informed voter. (sighs) But my stepdad, just from the conversations that we've had about queer life and my coming out and my friends being out, safety issues that some of my friends have with their families, he seems to really 
have resonated with that. And it kind of started with the trans military ban. We talked about that. And he was like, what are your thoughts on this? And I was like, well, I think it's fucking stupid. And he was like, you know what? I agree. I think if somebody wants to serve with me, then they can serve with me. I don't care what their gender is. And I was like, okay, all right. And we had a conversation about how do you make bathrooms more accessible? He's very invested in learning about trans people, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. Because that's a very specific track that I didn't think he would latch on to, but he has. I was raised in a very liberal democratic household, Mm -hmm. but I remember as a young kid, I would literally just repeat things my parents said. Yeah. that, That I didn't... I didn't really understand because they were political and I knew that. and But I didn't really totally understand what I was saying, but then my parents said it. So clearly this was the right. Yeah. Did you have that with the opposite? And was there a point when you were like, wait a minute? Oh, yeah, there definitely was. I must have been in middle school when I started to kind of have these conversations with my family. And the one that I always come back to is marriage equality. Because I remember writing all these papers in middle school, the persuasive essays that you have to write. And I always came back to marriage equality. And I was like, I think it's stupid that we don't have marriage equality. And this is why. And I think that was the point in time where I started to be like, well, I don't understand why my parents think this way because I think this way and I started to have that ideological rub with them which of course only got more informed the farther along I got in my education and growing as a person but I started to have those conversations with them fairly early and a lot of them were kind of shut down so it's hard to have conversations with them now Because of the resistance that I had as a kid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it sounds like you're you're doing it. Yeah, I'm certainly trying. (laughs) There are days where, you know, it's just too exhausting. You know, it's just not worth the energy. And that always sucks. Because I feel like I'm the only person that can get through to them. You know, I'm the only person that they're going to sit down and have a conversation with about this that's out of their comfort level. Yeah, and I was reading a, a couple of different articles like about statistically, because, you know, there's all these jokes about, like, how, why are we having these presidential and vice presidential debates? Like, mm-hmm. everyone's mind is made up. Like, who's undecided and, like, trying to figure it out? But they're all saying, like, actually the most effective way to convince someone to um, actually consider or to decide to vote in the opposite way that they voted in 2016 Mm -hmm. is somebody close to them having a conversation with them. Right, right. Versus commercials or debates or Facebook posts or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what inspired me to do, to write a big long letter to them. And it was fairly well received from what I understand. My mom sent me this very cookie cutter text that was like, thank you so much for your letter on why you think we should vote for Joe Biden. Love and miss you. And I was like, is that good thing? (laughs) Like, did you take a positive (laughs) out of the letter? Uh, what? (laughs) Yeah, like, is that a yes, I will do this? Or a thank you for your application? Exactly. It felt like a rejection letter to a job. (laughs) I was like, I can't tell if this is positive or not. (laughs) But it's a it's a response. And it wasn't a total shutdown. And so like, that's, that's the progress is like, she's at least thinking about it. 
Right. And a lot of times I tell people, like, that's all I could ask you to do is just think about what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely appreciated the effort that she put into text me back and be like, hey, I did get your letter and I did read it. Yeah, because or else you'd be like, did you even, did it arrive? Should I send another one? Right. (laughs) The way the mail system is now. Oh my gosh, yeah. Did they read this? (laughs) Did the Um, USPS confiscate my letter? Did it end up somewhere totally different? I did want to ask, I know this is shifting gears, but um, because I know you're an audio engineer and in doing this podcast, I respect so much, (laughs) so much of what you do because it is, the technology is beyond me and Mm -hmm. bless your heart for for (laughs) being able to understand. I'm like, I don't understand why this works. It just, if you push the button here and you do this here, this is what happens. And I can't tell you why, (laughs) and I can't explain it, but I was just wondering what got you into, into that uh, field. Yeah. Well, music was really important to me as a kid. I did band and choir and everything. Stopped doing it for a little while because it was lame. So I jumped back into it in high school and was just really starting to learn that music was something that was very apparently important. It became very, very clear, especially when I was going through my move and coming out and trying to sift through all my feelings that like music was there. And there were people who were going through the same things. Like I got deeply invested in Adam Lambert because I was like, you two are (laughs) queer. (laughs) Yes. What a hero. Love that guy. (laughs) Yeah, he's so talented. Oh my gosh, he's crazy talented. So you know, I started to be exposed to this media that made me feel less alone. And I realized that that's a field that I wanted to go into. But I didn't feel like I had the creativity on the end of an actual artist. So I started looking into behind the scenes music jobs. And I came across audio engineering. And I was like, Oh, that's so cool. I can help these people in a really clear-cut way so that they can make their music that made me feel like I wasn't alone. Yeah. That, I mean, that's uh, you found something that you love and you found a way that you can participate in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's a really good way to put it. Do you have the desire to be, you know, in front of the camera or on the mic? Is that something that you want or you, or you just enjoy being part of the, the process? I like being part of the behind the scenes because if there's no people like me to do it, then there's no creation. There has to be people who are technically minded to help facilitate the creativity. And sometimes that's the same person. You know, there are so many people and so many artists that do all their engineering themselves and write all their music. And I think that's so awesome. And I have such respect. But I know that not everybody is like that. And not everybody has those complete skill sets. So it's cool to be able to collaborate with people who are better creators, like songwriters or guitar players, who then need me to facilitate their art. How does one get into audio engineering? Like, how do you break, mm-hmm. how do you find collaborations, folks to work with, get the experience? How, if someone wants to do it, like, what do you say they should do? I think first and foremost, it's very important to go to a place where there is music. You know, it was hard for me to justify staying in Pittsburgh when there is music, 
but not in the same capacity as other areas. You know, I could move to Atlanta and have a really rich music scene down there. I could move to Austin and have a really rich music scene. And if you can't physically move yourself, you can scrounge around and find resources to connect you to those people. But I think it's harder to do that versus actually being able to go get coffee with someone and pick their brain. I mean, we can't get coffee now, but (laughs) (laughs) normal times. So that's my first point of advice, I think. And my other passionate point of advice is going and getting some sort of certification or degree. There's a lot of audio schools dispersed across the United States that are basically like an associate's degree type program. And those are awesome. And I know some really great people who have graduated from those organizations who are great engineers and very great creators. And there's obviously four-year schools too, if you're looking to get more of a traditional education. And that's the way that I went mostly because my mom was like, oh God, please get a minor in business (laughs) or something. (laughs) But either way, I think as long as you're training in a formal setting, it is going to put you at an advantage. Like not only can you put that on your resume and say, hey, I have this experience, this two years of experience at this school. These are the things that I know from my two years there or same with the university. I think just having that on your resume helps to legitimize you. You're not just a hobbyist doing this in your basement because you like music, you're taking the time out to go and get a degree, go and get certified and be able to study rigorously. Yeah. I mean, for me, audio engineering is like, have someone who knows what they're doing, teach you how to do it Mm -hmm. and then do it, you know, Mm -hmm. just keep working at it. Cause I learned so much just, like I said, the podcast isn't by any means complicated audio, but for me it was. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. When you're starting out, everything is so overwhelming. And you're just staring at your computer like, Oh, God, what do all these buttons do? (laughs) Yeah, my brother bought me my brother is a musician. He did our our theme for the podcast. And Mm -hmm. he bought me a a mixing board. I I used it once and I don't think I used it right. Like, I think I had had all the settings where it was just the microphone as it would have been without the mixing board. (laughs) But um, I'm gonna learn it at some point. That that was one of my quarantine things that I didn't uh, quite get around to. I was like, I'm going to figure out the buttons on this thing. (laughs) There are so many. There's so many buttons and they all, it's like learning a a new language. You really have to, to know what the terms are sometimes to be able to be like, oh, okay, this is what this does. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why, you know, I respect so much what you do and I think it's so amazing and um, thanks so much for, for hanging out with us. Of um, course. Thanks for letting me talk about myself. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really I enjoyed it. I love learning about people. That's why beforehand, you know, you're like, hey, is there, are there any questions? And I was like, I, I'd rather it just happen the way it happens because mm-hmm. I I don't want the answers ahead of time. I want I'm, I'm genuinely asking these questions because I'm genuinely interested in everything I'm asking. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like the way that you set that up because I feel like I was able to feel like I was having a conversation even though we're hanging out on our computers remotely. 
Yes. Well, you know, as soon as quarantine lifts and I can travel, Nashville is absolutely one of my, I'm a, I'm a country Mm -hmm. music fan. Yeah. I'm a barbecue fan. I'm a whatever food is in Nashville fan. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I, I love going up there. So um, hopefully, you know, in the next year or so I can make, because it's only eight hours from New Orleans. Right. It's It's pretty close, you know, comparatively. Not a bad trip. So hopefully if I make it up there, we can actually hang out in person. Yes, that would be so much fun. I would love that. I'll take you to all the gay clubs. Yes. If you want to let folks know how they can connect with you, social media, if you have any stuff coming out soon, any mm-hmm. releases, any, any, anything, I don't know, Zoom conferences. <laughs> I don't know what folks are doing. Everyone's doing different stuff now. Everyone's so. doing different stuff. We are all adapting in really creative ways, I think. Yes. But yeah, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at crybabyaudio, TN, TN for Tennessee. So yeah, I post about what I'm up to there. I post about my radio work, my studio work and I'm always open for people to come and create I do podcasts and I do music so I'm a little bit of everything I feel a grab bag of skills (laughs) yeah all much needed skills at this this juncture in the world (laughs) right oh my gosh yeah so yeah I'm always open and down to talk about projects or just to talk about being queer and being in audio or being a woman in the music industry. I really do like talking and connecting with people. I think that's the most fun thing about my personal socials. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for of being course. part of this. Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Michaela, for sharing her world with you. Special thank you to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. We're on social media. We're everywhere. Instagram and Facebook at Near and Queer to My Heart. Twitter at Queer to My Heart. We have some great merch for you over at tpublic.com. Near and Queer to My Heart there. We're going to post links for that on our social media, on our liner notes. So check that out. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope to talk to you all again soon. Thank you all. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.